greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 112, From Good to God. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us from our worldwide shed quarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. I'm back here with my main man, Jesse Fury, and we are on episode 112, which was my uh, weight class in wrestling, Jesse, in the eighth grade. Put on a few more, 112 pounds. <laughs> I won't ask what you'd wrestle at now. I would probably double that up, and we'll probably be in the right neighborhood. Well, it's good to be back. We are rounding the corner today and finishing up our series that began with the discussion of the book Science and the Good by Hunter Nedaleski. And our purpose today, Jesse, is what I've been most excited for, what I've been engaging with my own children about, and even in my own ministry of how we discuss this idea of of real objective goodness and how that's a pointer to God himself, and even a wonderful way to talk to our non-Christian friends about Jesus and and fruitful evangelism or sharing the gospel so that people might taste and see that the Lord is good, uh, become forgiven, part of the family, part of the kingdom, through kind of an intellectual way to talk that's not too complex or deep, but yet can be very simple and uh, effective. So that's where we're headed today. How how have you been uh, in these early days of our new uh, school year and starting out the season uh, 20, fall of 20, whatever we are, 21? 21, yeah, (laughs) man. I've been good. I've been good. Yeah. Things are good in the Fury house. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm back from sabbatical. Yeah. So yeah. I'm rested. Uh, we hired, we've got a staff team now with the Bonhoeffer house. Very nice. So, so that's very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because we got some high quality staff people who are like, just excited to run, you know, run the race together and take things off of your plate and yeah, say we somebody hi- else can do, right. do the we, things. Right. Yeah, we hired Michael Worrell, who uh, is has been through the Bonhoeffer House to be the associate director, and then Holly Paulette, who is like I know Holly. Holly is like a wizard of communication and organization. In 2018, I did a year of consultancy with our church, and my uh, one of my chief recommendations at the end of that year was to hire her, which she did. She worked which for BBC did. a couple years and got things in order, and now I hope she does the same. With the Bonhoeffer uh, House. Amen. Yeah, man. Things put, your, put your house... A house in order. In order. So, Jesse, today we're going to look at a few examples, one from Dr. King, one from C.S. Lewis, but then some just practical helps for our friends out there who might want to talk with their Christian friends or their non-Christian friends about these topics in a way that would be profitable and helpful. And so today, one of the things I want to begin with, Jesse, is to say any appeal, right, uh, to necessary moral change, like you want to better yourself or better society, requires a an appeal to transcendence. Now, we've been talking about this the whole series, right? That moral ontology, the existence of a real good, not just cultural opinions, not just conventions, not this uh, this culture does it this way, whatever's right for you is right for you. But if you're going to say, particularly if you're not in the majority, that something needs to change and be better, you're appealing to something outside of the box you're living in. And so one of the best examples of that was the civil rights activism in our country. And the the, the wonderful example of that in a writing kind of way, obviously there's lots of speeches and books and things like that, but, but the simple letter that Dr. King wrote from when he was in jail, right, uh, to what he was would call moderate clergy, so, you know, mainline Christians, evangelical Christians, and, and Jewish rabbis as well. He was basically explaining why he wouldn't wait 
uh, for justice for for African-American people in America. And so he wrote Letter from Birmingham Jail, and it's this profound example of looking beyond the mere conventions and laws of human beings in order to appeal to transcendent moral order to call people to change, right? And a whole society to change. After all, if it's just whatever the majority wants, how do you get rid of Jim Crow in the South? Well, you have to form a coalition call to morality outside of ourselves uh, and then work for change. And so, Jesse, I think you're going to read for us just the last couple stanzas of that letter. We do, we'll put in the show notes the a link to the entire thing. You should read it if you haven't. And Jesse's going to read a little bit. I'll, I'll stop you here and there just to kind yeah. of make comments so we can look at this example of appealing to transcendent good. That's right. So this is from Letter from Birmingham Jail. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. But again, I've been disappointed. Okay, so he comes to Birmingham hoping that he would find allies, right? Um, Justice of our cause and then deep moral concern, right? He thought he would find allies, but he's been disappointed. Keep going. Yeah. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. Okay. This is important, and I, and, and I included this small section because it's easy to miss. He's saying that there, there are religious leaders that were in the South that would say, hey, comply with this idea of desegregation with schools and yeah, culture, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so the buses and the serving counters at restaurants, water fountains, schools would be desegregated. He's saying that we're, there were people that would say, hey, just do that, desegregate, because it's the law. Now, you would think, okay, hey, just do it. We'll abide by the new law, that that's good. But to Dr. King, this is not good enough because it's a mere compliance with convention of human beings creating new laws. He's talking about something higher because he says, follow the decree because integration is morally right, right? And that and the Negro is your brother, right? He's appealing to something higher than the law. That's right. And it's almost as if, um, you know, Romans 13 is not enough here. That's right. You know, uh, uh, obedience to the laws as a way of honoring, honoring God isn't enough because there's actually something better. That's right. That's yeah. right. And even like um, moral philosophers, you know, I know I talk about Thomas Aquinas a lot, would say that an act is right or wrong when it combines many things, not just an, a mere external compliance, but first a motion of the soul to what is good and then motivated from that to do the good. And so uh, it's, it's more important, particularly with something like civil rights, racial unity amongst Christians, right? It was more important to say, look, there's something more important than the law. This is right, inequality is right, uh, and that th- this is a brotherhood, an issue of love in the kingdom. So mm. keep going. Mm. In the midst of blatant injustices afflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion 
which made a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. Okay, so here he's calling out this dichotomy, right, that the gospel, so to speak, is only about saving souls going to heaven and nothing to do with the condition of your brother in this world. In fact, um, if we're to love and do good works because we're Christians, it has everything to do uh, with our brother, and certainly the Bible teaches teaches that. And so then he he ends, and this is the last paragraph yeah. of the letter that I'll have you read as well, in kind of a, a, a really helpful tone, I think, for persuasion. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. All right. Now, Dr. King is just a fantastic writer here, obviously. Um, And what he's saying in metaphors really points us to there really is dark clouds of racial prejudice, deep fogs of misunderstanding, and fear-drenched communities. That kind of language is saying, hey, this is bad. And then to to com- contrast that with a distant future with radiant stars, right, of love, brotherhood, and will outshine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. And so, but without this idea that there's a transcendent uh, light, there's a transcendent goodness, there's a transcendent rightness, there's a moral rectitude uh, to what he's calling for. Um, this would basically boil down to, right, uh, a call to nowhere. But his worldview is such that there is a morality above even the law and certainly above convention of what the majority, say, in the Jim Crow South, desired for their social configurations. But if you don't have this moral transcendence or something out, outside of you, what do you appeal to to make real moral change, particularly if moral changes have di- direction, right? Can can this be better than that? Soon as you say that, you're in the world of objective, good moral values. Remember, moral ontology, the existence of the good matters for this reason. Now, moral uh, epistemology, moral instruction, we have to engage in that to teach what is good and right and true and ourselves learn in wisdom and morality. But without without the existence, you cannot make this kind of argument that Dr. King so effectively made in letter from Birmingham jail. Now, as a follower of Jesus, Jesse, you and I and some of you listening um, would, would agree there is a moral right and wrong. It's from God's character. It's given to us in, in the perfect example of Jesus himself and his teaching uh, in the moral law of God that's expressed and summarized in things like the Ten Commandments. But what do we do with that as witnesses, if we care, like to share Jesus with others? After all, moral philosophy discussions, uh, philosophical uh, engagement is fun and good. But ultimately, uh, Christian people have been given things like the Great Commandments, love God, love neighbor, and the Great Commission to make disciples, right? And we want to see people come to know him. And so in this series, the reason why, Jesse, I wanted us to engage over many months on this to say, hey, look, seeking good or morality by science and casting God aside was an enlightenment project that was an utter failure, right? And so our current reality is even like, hey, morality, maybe it's an artifact of your brain or evolutionary naturalism, or maybe 
maybe it's like, hey, these are our social goals. They're not really good or bad, but who gets to say, right? And the brutal, and I'll just say brutal relativism that must be true if atheism holds. There is no higher morality. So what is it? Well, it's just people fighting it out in them streets. And so, but we care, we care about more than this. We care about people meeting God, right? So that the good, the transcendent moral sense that people have is actually designed by God to take us somewhere. And I think as witnesses, we should point uh, to Jesus. And I, and I want us to engage two different pathways. You, I, 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 Debate whether to use the word arguments, two arguments for why Jesus is the way, the oh, truth, and life. Pathways. That's, pathways, that's a right? gentle way that's to put gen- it, right? Because argument, people think, think you're fighting. Yeah. Um, a way of thinking through things together to, to lead us to Christ. And so some of you out there may be listening and have friends who care about justice. Maybe non-Christian friends who care deeply about justice. This is good. Now, you might say, well, what, what they mean by justice and what you mean by justice might not be the same. At this point in the pathway, doesn't matter. In fact, I want to give you a little paradigm that I gleaned years ago from a man named Curtis Chang. Um, Curtis Chang, he's now like a consultant guy who's killing, killing the game, so to speak. But he used to be a campus minister, I believe, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And he wrote a book called Engaging Unbelief. And he has this little framework for engaging with people, which has three words, enter, retell, and capture. I've changed the word capture to complete because I think it sounds less imperialistic. Uh, but Chang, <laughs> Chang says, hey, we want to enter with with a person following their lead on their terms and in their worldview at the beginning of a conversation. Retail. We can affirm truth in our friends' views, cast off error, and then and then help them doubt their own um, foundational assumptions so that we can lead them in, or complete their story or their cares with gospel beauty or the story of the gospel. So we may have friends uh, who care about justice. Now, they may not have the same definition as you. That's okay. We want to enter, Jesse, with them in that discussion. And so here are some of the questions. And, and we can just interact over this, and I'll kind of be like me, and you'll be a, somebody who believes in justice. And I might say to you, hey, Jesse, what justice are you really after? Are you talking about making the world a better place? Yeah, I mean, of course I want justice. And, you know, Reed, what I find often is uh, when, I, when I'm having those conversations, there's a kind of a... Uh, an appeal to an inner knowledge of we just know that just this know. is wrong. You just know that this should be the the right way. Or the appeal is to um, uh, like a kind of rebalancing of the scales or an inversion, a flipping of the scales, right? So yeah. it's been this certain way for yeah. so long. Yeah. And so the only way to, to fix it is to just dismantle power structures in order yeah. to, yeah. to um, repair the way things were. Yeah. So do you think uh, for you, Jesse, um, oh, I, I'm not, I'm not role playing very well. That, so, no, that's yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I like what you're saying. Do you think <laughs> that balance means better? Like just balancing power makes the world better. Why do you think that? And how do you know when that takes place? Uh, is there a math equation that can be done for that? You just know when you see it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, what does it look like when you see it? Oh, everybody makes forty forty two dollars an hour or fourteen dollars oh, yeah. an yeah, hour. Everybody makes more money. Makes enough. Yeah, right? yeah. And um, Jeff and Bezos doesn't have all the money anymore. Yeah, we so. tax. Yeah, we yeah. we uh, we tax the rich. And well, who gets to say? Who gets to say? 
what that is and, mm. or, or gets defined to define that that actually is good. Is that just how, who gets to say that? The majority. The majority. Yeah. Okay. Is it, so we vote. Yeah. Some, we vote. Some sort of democratic process. Yeah. Right? The democratic process is good or results in good. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, if, if the majority side decides, how, how do you make moral change if the majority wants something that's bad? For instance, Nazi Germany was voted in by legal processes where people voted or, or in America, right? Um, the civil rights movement began as a minority opinion in certain places. What did they appeal to? How could they know mm. what was right if the majority determines what's good or just? Yeah, I do think, you know, I'm breaking character here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think as I as I'm having these conversations with people a lot of times uh there is an appeal to consensus or but that consensus is a pretty narrow niche. It's like uh whatever me and my friends who think like me. <laughs> yeah, it's whatever niche usually yeah. online but also maybe in person yeah. where the idea that someone could think differently than me is actually almost a they must be evil or yeah, something. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. Uh, but there is a kind of a, uh, an appealing to uh, being on the right side of history, being the good guys, having the the, the consensus, winning that over, um, getting rid of the bad guys. You know, uh, yeah. Make them further and further on the outskirts because they're the bad ones. Well, we're talking about what is good. So, if you yeah. if you want to make change and you're a minority. Um, and, and you're telling me that what's good is defined by democratic processes and the most people thinking that uh, we can never really make moral change apart from the majority. Yeah. But we can. I mean, I agree with you. We absolutely can. And I think we should. But it seems to require something higher than merely the opinions of a of a group. And so I agree with that, Jesse, but I just think there has to be a standard outside of ourselves to which we're all called to, or at least responsible. In fact, the nature of goodness or justice or moral change seems to say that we are actually accountable for what we do. So if I act evil or unjust, that I'm accountable. And see, moral accountability seems to have to do with moral duty that I ought to do good and sh- or I ought to act justly and shun it. And that seems to be owed to somebody. Now we could say we owe it to each other, but again, um, why should we? Why should we think that just because we're tricky monkeys who can do that together? Would you be interested, Jesse, into hearing what like why I think that a transcendent or a morality that's outside of ourselves would matter? Of course. Okay. Well, I'm the, persuaded. I mean, <laughs> you're persuaded. You captured me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> completing it says that God is just ultimately. Yeah. We all fall short and we need moral change ourselves. And that brings both humility and willingness to turn from our own injustice and evil uh, to God to, to lead us in, in a, a real view of justice. And so if we care about these things, it seems God would care more. So all the racism, sexism, evilisms, and Nazisms, and thisism, or thatism, God cares infinitely about what is true and good. Uh, but not just in those people that we might think are bad, but also in, the, in our own hearts. And so not only do we join the human community in needing moral change, uh, we can then appeal to a higher morality, like like Dr. King does uh, in the civil rights movement, so that the majority can be critiqued by true goodness, light, love, and beauty. So that's just an example, guys, of how you can start with your friends who might believe in justice, which we should, and talk about uh, the transcendent calling to all of us to turn from sin and self 
to build a better community together in light of the true goodness of God. Now, Jesse, that's one pathway. If you have a friend that believes in justice, you might have friends that aren't yet Christians or don't believe in God who are kind of mad about the world having suffering or having difficulty. In fact, one of the common philosophical reasons that people want to say there is no God is by looking at the world and declaring that it's really bad or that there's evil. There's a problem that that this evil in the world doesn't seem to line up with a good and just and loving God. Jesse, you ever heard anyone kind of say that kind of thing to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the time when I'm having a conversation, not an argument, a pathway. A pathway. I'm on a pathway with <laughs> somebody. With a code, code journey. Or <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot. Of, really, uh, um, the, the objection of evil in the world is really most often about personal suffering, yeah. um, witnessing injustice, witnessing. Th- really, and, and we can all, can't we all relate with that? Yeah, can, absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, and so, so I think, however, at the same time, I, I do really believe that each person has a, uh, that, you know, Pascal would say, right. The, 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 the God shaped vacuum in their heart. So yeah. I, I really think that. Or Calvin um, called the census divinitatis, yeah, the, the sense, sense of, of the divine. Yeah, of the divine. Of, so, yeah. so I, I do think a lot of times, even in the, even in the most, um, you know, vigorous objector, there's actually something deeper that goes, I, I actually don't want this to be true. I, yeah. I want there to be a God. I yeah. want to, to believe that in the end, uh, these wrongs are going to be made right. Yeah. There will be justice in the yeah. end. Yeah. You know, as, had... as MLK said that the, uh, well, I think he was quoting somebody, but the, uh, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And yeah. I think we all Want that you to know, be we true? Don't want that to be true, and I yeah. think, in fact, it is true. Yeah, in fact, I've I've experienced the phenomenon with friends that I've known that that are still not Christian today, and then even with a good friend that was very much a, a skeptic and an atheist who became a Christian later in life before his death. I don't know if I've ever shared his story on this podcast. I've shared it in sermons on the road. A man named John Jenkins I met in philosophy class here at Virginia Tech years ago, uh, but he was almost like he was mad at the God he didn't think was real. And I always found that fascinating. I even like kind of messed with him. I was like, John, why are you so pissed off at God? It's not, you, you just said it's like a, a fairy in the sky or some figment of my imagination. I don't think you should be that angry at this being, uh, unless you're angry at me. And if you are, you should just tell me. You know. Um, and so one of the things about this uh, observation I really think is good. Remember, enter into where a person is, uh, help retell the story, expose its tragic flaw, then complete the story of the gospel. Um, C.S. Lewis saw this very clearly, obviously, in his classic book, Mere Christianity. He makes uh, a version, I would say, of what people call the moral argument for the existence of God. And he even would start with somebody's insight that something was evil as proof, right, for God. Now, he says it this way. This is just a short passage out of Mere Christianity. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. That was his observation. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. 
but the standard that measures two things is something different from either. Now, what Lewis is saying is like, hey, if you know what a straight stick is, you can know if you have a crooked one. Or as we would say, if there really is a good, we can make the objection that something is fallen short, something is a, you know, a privation, or something is wrong. Something's really wrong. Uh, but that requires there to be something different than the two things being compared, uh, something outside of them, right? A divine moral ruler, uh, as it were, to make a distinction between good and evil, and would even like have our opinions have to uh, line up or fall short of them. And so our friend's insight that the world is cruel and unjust is true, and look, it's according to the Bible, the world is, was created good and is currently broken. Or as G.K. Chesterton once said, that we seem to be living in a shipwreck, right? We see the goods of Crusoe's ship that's gone down from the foundation of the world. The world is a shipwreck with good things flowing all around, but all kind of strewn everywhere and out of order and twisted even where those who want to do good put people in concentration camps or gulags because they think in their mind they're doing something good when in fact according to objective morality that flows from God, they're doing something very, very evil. Yeah, you know, um, and I, I think just to follow up on what you were, you know, all joking aside, the pathway idea the that um, I think that as Christians who are wanting to be witnesses to Christ in all things, including the good, and, and seeing evil as also a pathway. Yeah. Um, it's an insight, right? Yeah, it can it, go somewhere. And, and, and the best way to approach it, I think, is to ask questions, right? So, yeah. you know, how, how do you know it's unjust? Yeah. Where, like, did you learn that? Yeah. Where did you learn it from? Yeah. If you didn't learn it, where, how did it get inside of you? Yeah, how do you know do it's you, right? Why do you have this intuition? Because yeah. I think that intuition, right, is good. good. Yeah. It's our moral yeah. sense, right? And, and I think a lot of times just asking those questions are more effective than giving the uh, alternative answer, at least at least at first. That's right. I, I find that in engaging with people, particularly those who are skeptical or not Christians, is to walk with them towards the truth and allow a sense of discovery. When we discover things ourselves, when we see it, right, there's a, there's a difference when someone is trying to impose something on you. And so I do think as a co-traveler on a pathway, uh, we need to gently, kindly, but clearly uh, point these things out. And so one little argument, this is actually an argument in the philosophical sense, Jesse, uh, meaning it's a, a thinking thing that really helped me was from a philosopher named William Lane Craig. Now, Dr. Craig, uh, I have to say this about everything. I don't agree with everything that Dr. Craig says and thinks, you know, for some reason we have to do that sophomoric disclosure. Um, but anyway, Dr. Craig is an analytic philosopher by training, PhD in philosophy, also uh, a theologian with a PhD, I, I believe, in theology in, from a school in Germany. So um, very sharp, and he, he shares this argument that I find is, it, it's obviously a philosophical syllogism, which means it has uh, statements and premises and conclusions, right? Um, but it's very basic, and I think very powerful and compelling. And so I'll put this in the show notes just for you guys, a little summary so you can read back through it. Uh, But his argument 
is what you call a sound and valid argument. In other words, that, that if its premises are true, the conclusion must logically follow, and it's unobjectable. So you have to deny something in it, or you're kind of stuck with the conclusion. And it's for you philosophy geeks out there, all three of you listening, um, this is the form of an argument called modus tollens in Latin, or which means taking away or denying the consequence. So it's in the form of if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. All you non-philosophers, just ignore that. Um, and here's his argument, Jesse. He says, if God does not exist, okay, that's P, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. And by objective moral values, here we mean that if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed everyone to think that their philosophy was right, that it would still be wrong even if it did not exist in human minds. In other words, objective moral values are from outside of ourselves. They're not subjective. We don't create them. We don't make them up. They don't come from the fluctuations of human brains. That if everyone in the world believed boiling babies for fun was right, it would still be wrong. That's what we mean by objective moral values. So if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Second premise. Objective moral values do exist, right? I think it's self-evidently true to many people. Um, objective moral values do exist, and therefore, right, God must exist. And this is a sound and valid argument. And the only way you can deny this, Jesse, is either to say there are objective moral values like that apart from God, that atheism or something somehow produces them, um, or you have to affirm moral relativism, either individually or culturally, usually culturally because it's a more sophisticated version of relativism. I found that that's what most atheists do. They want to say morality is either social goals or something else, that it's relative to culture and people and cannot be objective in the way uh, it would be if it comes from outside of ourselves. But relativism has a lot of problems, Jesse. And so uh, when our friends say, well, yeah, may maybe things are uh, all relative. Maybe Hitler, for him, was doing what's right. We talked about this a little bit last time when I shared the story of the Czech Republican uh, professor uh, who was That's wanting right. to push that argument, saying, oh, wow, this is there's no right and wrong, and this is right for you, and that's not. But he was obviously pushing an absurdity. Because relativism, when you think about it, you can't even accuse others of being really wrong, right? You can't complain about the problem of evil because nothing's really evil. You can't accept moral praise or assign blame. You can't blame Donald Trump for everything or Joe Biden. Uh, relativists can't make charges of unfairness or injustice. Relativists can't really improve morally. You just kind of do stuff. Uh, you can't hold a meaningful moral discussion about moral change without transcendence. And you certainly cannot promote the obligation or duty right? Moral duty of tolerance, right? This, this, this list comes from a book, Francis Beckwith, Craig Kokel's book, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. You know, you know um, as a, uh, a literary guy, um, I'd re I, I recommend in, in thinking about good and evil and, and God, um, you know, really, I think, although it's maybe more in the existential kind of world, but Dostoevsky's the Brothers Karamazov is yeah. kind of like, I mean, the classic because you you actually the weight you, of it in novel form. Yeah, and you have um, that's where he's got that famous quote attributed to him that I think was Sartre who who attributed to him of uh, I think it's Dimitri who says, "If there is no God, then everything's permissible." That's right. That's right. And, but in the at the same time, in the novel, you have Ivan who is who is wrestling with the problem of evil, essentially saying, if one 
child suffers, how can there be a good God? Yeah. And then you have Father Zosima, who is basically uh, tells his own story about being evil, being transformed, and then taking on the like kind of being in the grime and the the the, the pain and suffering of others, and essentially modeling that you yeah. can actually uh, look full faced at evil and also fully trust in a good right. God. And, and in essence, Jesse, that's really what love does, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, love bears all things, hopes all things, right? This is the biblical view of love, and certainly um, God himself in yeah. the face of suffering, right? That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. The end of the story isn't suffering. It's resurrection life forever. And in, in the midst of it, God demonstrates, shows, gets hands dirty. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that Christ died for us. The idea that, yeah. that this, God himself did not uh, conquer in spite of suffering. He conquers through his own yeah, commitment. He, he doesn't remain distance from, right. distant from the suffering, from the injustice and evil. That's right. And so for me, Jesse, um, becoming a Christian around 20 years old, um, the conviction, obviously, that I had about things was spiritual. Um, it was kind of God, I believe, with all my heart, coming to get me in some sense, forgive me for my own moral uh, ineptitudes and wrongs, and forgive me and change me. Uh, but over the years, as I've studied deep and read, listened to lots of audiobooks, um, I've really come to see the beauty and the contours of Christian faith in the sense that it affirms our intuition that the world is broken and evil. Um, it affirms and brings humility because we have to admit that we're part of that, that I'm evil. Um, and then, But yet it affirms the goodness of God in the world and the transformative nature of God and the hopefulness of a future where uh, the scintillating beauty that Dr. King spoke about will be, right? In the end, that we will stand on the earth and at last we shall see God. And so this all flows from the idea that good and evil are real, moral ontology, not simply cultural creations. We have an obligation or a moral duty to shun uh, evil and do good, and that God's own unchanging nature is the source for transcendent truth, goodness, and beauty, and that he was willing to share that with us, right? And even as we worship or commune with God, we're engaging with the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the one who is the rightful judge of all things that we are accountable for. So when we read things like in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the goodness of God, that the wages, what we deserve for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, full forgiveness, life change, that then the calling is to, in humility, bow the knee, repent, turn from sin and self, believe the good, truly good news, and trust in the one who is good. Mm. You know, um, uh, I love that pathway from good to God and thinking about, this is one for me recently that I, I'm, I'm engaging, especially coming out of my sabbatical, because I've been able to engage with some neighbors, some friends, um, who I don't think we share a worldview. I, I, I don't, you know, we're, I'm still trying to get there, but good is the pathway. Uh, because when you're, when, when you're in, enjoying a particularly good meal together, yeah. um, there's something there that like, it, it's almost like, uh, it, it gets in tune with 
Yeah. Um, this, this glimpse of goodness. So it was C.S. Lewis actually talks a lot about this, right? Yeah. Like nostalgia. Yeah. You can't actually go back because if you go back, it was the, it was the song. It was the yeah. tune of a song you've never heard, right? That's right. And I think goodness is, can be that, right? Yeah. That when we can appeal to something that is good and we can agree on this. Yeah. And, and that's a pathway to say, where did, where does that come from? Yeah. Why do, why do we both think this is good? They're transcendent pointers to delights that are beyond what this world, even like, you know, when I uh, cook a good piece of, um, you know, sorry, vegan uh, friends, cook a good piece of meat. Mm, and I nice literally brisket. the other day I cooked some ribeyes and at the dinner table, it turned out so good that I took a bite and I raised my hand and said, <laughs> so we are, good. we are worshiping creatures. The, the, the sense that like, wow, this is a foretaste and that kind of delight isn't appropriate for a piece of meat or asparagus if you're a veggie source, but it is a pointer to a greater delight and a greater beauty that is coming. And C.S. Lewis rightly said, when we see that we're, we have a desire that nothing in this world can feel, it's obviously we've been made for another world. Amen. And I do think that the in- intuition of justice, the intuition of good and evil, is something that we can enter and jump on a pathway with our friends and take it all the way, all the way up to the glory and goodness of God, which came all the way down, right, mm. in the beauty and person of Jesus himself. He's worthy of our praise, Jesse. He's good. And the Gospel Underground Podcast is produced in partnership with Jesse and his multi-staffed Bonhoeffer House. Review Empire. In the Empire. Global Bonhoeffer House. Review us on iTunes. Five stars. Acceptable. We're on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Podcast. Now, Jesse, send your comments, feedback, and questions you might want us to take up here on the Underground to info at gospelunderground.org. We are Dialogue taking place on pathways in the borderlands (laughs) between the church and culture. We hope you see you out there. Peace, traveling.